0: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, dear listener. It's Buck, the Managing Editor. A quick note about this episode. Unfortunately, the original audio files became corrupted, and we were forced to use a backup recording to reconstruct this conversation. We know that there's a little bit of distracting noise in the background in a couple of cases. It's not the worst you've ever heard on the internet, but it's not up to our normal standard, and we apologize for that. The floggings have commenced and we'll do our best to never let it happen again. Now, enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. 1777 was a pivotal year in the American Revolution with important highs and lows. The highest point was the continental victory at Saratoga, while the nearly contemporaneous British occupation of Philadelphia was one of the low points. By the end of the year, George Washington's Continental Army, unable to eject the British from Philadelphia after a grueling summer and fall campaign, retreated to winter quarters at Valley Forge. The Valley Forge winter has since become the stuff of legend, a tale of deprivation and despair with images of bloody footprints in the snow from bootless soldiers and of Washington writing equally bootless requests to the Continental Congress for more material support. Is that, however, the best way to understand the Valley Forge winter? Professor Ricardo Herrera begs to differ. In his new book, Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778, Dr. Herrera brings historical insights to bear on those legends, offering a narrative of Washington's campaign that explains its challenges while also detailing how Washington and his staff met them. Beyond a simple underdog tale, the Valley Forge campaign emerges as a story of leadership and defense management that has much to teach us today. Here at A Better Peace, we delight in showcasing the work of War College colleagues, especially those who write lyrical historical narrative. So it is a treat to have Professor Herrera here to discuss his book. Ricardo Herrera is currently a visiting professor at the U.S. Army War College in the Department of National Security and Strategy, former armor, armor and cavalry officer in the U.S. Army. He is a graduate of Marquette University and UCLA. In addition to Feeding Washington's Army, he is also the author of for Liberty and the Republic, the American Citizen as Soldier, 1775 to 1861, and is currently working on a project tentatively entitled, An mm-hmm. American Soldier in Mexico, the Life and Letters of Edward Ashley Bowen Phelps, 1846 to 1848. In addition to numerous articles and chapters on U.S. military history, we are delighted to have him with us today on A Better Piece. Welcome, Rick Herrera.
0: Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So Rick, how did you end up writing about Valley Forge after writing about citizen soldiers? Is there a connection?
0: Um, there is a connection of a sort, but uh, and I'll struggle to figure one out as we're chatting. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's what historians do, right? You find patterns
0: in retrospect. <clears throat> That's right. right? That's mean... right. That's right. That's why we drive with one eye on the rearview mirror, life in the past lane. But the 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 book came out of a teaching moment. So in 2010, as I recall, I was building a staff ride on the Philadelphia campaign, and it was for an outfit out of Fort Monmouth. I'm going to see if I can't remember the exact uh, title of it. It's got this long name, c 3 t Program Executive Office Command Control and communications tactical there we go and wow. um yeah quite a mouthful and so i was contacted by uh, alan davis and uh, al is a retired brigadier general in the army reserve mm-hmm. who loves history asked me if i could put together uh, something on the philly campaign i said sure and so i built a three-day staff ride on it starting out with the landings at head of elk taking all the way through valley forge now, I could have gone further and concluded it with Monmouth, which, which I think is really the, the, book end, the other bookend to it, but reality intrudes. So when I was at Valley Forge, I was trying to figure out how can I introduce some movement into this story? Because staff rides, yes, they're about the terrain, they're about the human element, but they're also, I believe, fundamentally about movement. Mm-hmm valley forge is static and so as i was at uh, anthony wayne's statue by the pennsylvania encampment i recalled a book that i'd reviewed a few years uh, earlier wayne bodle's valley forge winter which is the best scholarly work on the encampment hasn't been touched and i, I remember some remembered something about the sustainment operations so i started digging into it looking into, the, into the, the resources, got into the primary uh, documents. And so I was able to flesh out an hour at this one stand. I had so much material, I thought, well, I may as well write an article out of it. So I knocked out an article that came out in 2011, as I, if I remember. Very happily, I won a writing award from, Army, from uh, the Army Historical Foundation. I had enough stuff there. I knocked out a second article in 2015, which also very happily uh, won an award, this one from the uh, Society for Military History, and that same year that my first book came out. And as you know, if you have two articles, you've got two chapters. That's the beginning of a book. So I I, I started uh, going into it seriously, really, in 2015, and uh, here it is. So it it, it really speaks to my belief that teaching informs scholarship which in turn informs your your teaching. And there's this wonderful feedback loop. And because ultimately you want people to read your stuff, ultimately you want to be able to convey what it is that you're working on, and it should enhance your, your teaching. Your teaching therefore should enhance your scholarship. And so I, I see them really as this, this, this great play between two fundamental elements of what it is that we do as historians, as educators, as teachers? Sure.
1: Well and, and this is really good because the, the, the relation between teaching and research, that one of the things that one encounters when one teaches uh, a subject like say the American Revolution is you, know, you, you will deal with a certain number of things that students don't already know and that's one challenge is giving mm-hmm. teaching them things they don't know. The other one is um, unteaching or uh, or as the Germans would say um teaching, um, uh, the things that the students think they already know and Absolutely. i would say that americans think they know if americans know anything about the american revolution granted that's a big statement there but if they do they think they know a lot about valley forge um and uh how is you know that that i know that you know, one doesn't uh, uh the, the terms herbs like revisionism are are politically charged but your work does revise our understanding or at least the popular understanding of valley forge and yeah. so let's talk about that
0: Sure and, and, and you know actually I you know I, I I know that a lot of people like to use the word revisionist as a pejorative. Mm-hmm. That's just frankly silly, and I, I dismiss yes. people who use that because every real historian is a revisionist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If your name was Thucydides, you were revising what was done. Mm-hmm. If your name is Herodotus, you were doing the same thing. So if you're just repeating the same old silly stories, you are not a historian. Right. Just go away, please. Uh, so there, I've, I've got that off my chest. I'm sure I'll have another rant, but that's that's the first <laughs> one.
1: <laughs> well, we'll remember. We we'll, we'll remind people at the end of the program to send us their comments on what they doing, So I'll make sure that they get sent to you, Rick. <laughs>
0: that's right. He's a crazy man. In any case, the um, as I was uh, as I was looking at this thing, and, and you're absolutely right about we have these certain ideas, and I've often ask people what comes to mind about Valley Forge, and and you nailed it, you know, bloody footprints in the snow, um, that um, frankly rather cheesy piece of art, and I'm using massive air quotation marks, with Washington kneeling in the snow praying, um, the fact that they were, the the, the soldiers were this greek chorus suffering nobly in the snow just waiting while the british enjoyed a a lovely winter in philadelphia doing what all good 18th century armies should do drink whore and gamble Uh, you know is there some truth to it yeah maybe a little Mm -hmm. but what i did was re-envision valley forge in terms of something that most readers uh, would understand after the past 20 years of the U.S.'s engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's FOB Valley Forge, Forward Operating Base Valley Forge. It's a temporary armed encampment from which military power is exercised. The army is an act, was an active field army. These were not a bunch of guys standing around saying, look at us, we're going to ennoble everything and you're now going to worship us nonsense. These were human beings with real human needs, like getting food. So I recast it as something like FOB Valley Forge. And Washington was sending out patrols, patrols looking for combat, looking for information. Outside of the camp, a, a few miles away, he had outposts. So you can think of those as combat outposts. Mm-hmm. There were also active patrols, screening making sure that the enemy could not approach undetected so washington was doing many of the things that our students at the war college understand that they did when they were deployed to afghanistan and iraq these are you know so you put aside the fact that they're wearing triangle hats and they've got uh, muzzle loading muskets so what the concepts i think remain the same Mm -hmm. and when you look at valley forge when you examine it through a military lens i think you can understand how it really was this armed encampment it sits on high ground when you visit valley forge get rid of all the trees not literally because you'll get in trouble and the trees are really lovely but get rid of them in your imagination because they weren't there Mm. The, the the fortifications command all of the high speed avenues of approach they've got interlocking fields of fire those are all concepts that are very familiar to today's soldiers, to to today's Marines. They understand these things. There are fortified positions scattered throughout the encampment on key terrain. So together they form a defense system. It's a, it's a, a system that is mutually supportive. And as you work your way westward through it, there's a line of entrenchments on Mount Joy. You've also got the artillery park so all of these things go into the construction of valley forge as this fortified camp and it prevents uh, it's so strong it prevents the british from even considering an attack even when there's an opportunity such as the grand forge of 1778
1: well and the the idea uh which i suppose military historians would understand better than casual historians of the revolution, but Washington wanted to find a location that was close enough that he could keep an eye on general Howe in Philadelphia while, while also being far enough back that, that they, they, that they were out of contact, but um, uh, that this was a place that was chosen consciously. Right. That it wasn't just the army stumbled into this spot and said, "Oh my gosh, I guess we'll you know we'll stay here and we'll wait for the snow to stop or something like that right so that, that the, the way that you describe the, the the construction of the camp emphasizes its intentionality and also points out that it's it's not a bad place to be if you're if you're trying to keep an eye on an army that's occupied was that would that be fair to say yeah the um
0: the the camp. It was a was a compromise, and it was the least bad choice available Mm -hmm. to Washington. He went; he was basically negotiating with uh, the Second Continental Congress, but also the governors of Philadelphia and to some Philadelphia, excuse me, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and to some extent Delaware. So this really emphasizes, I think, the close connection and the political nature of warfare. You know, and that's another one that we that we regular that we all regularly hear. You know, politics should stay out of war. Well, if that's the case, there shouldn't be a war. <laughs> war, <laughs> waging war is about attaining political ends, right. unless you're just going out for the simple sake of slaughtering your fellow human beings. Right. Uh, so, this really emphasizes, I believe, the close connections between. Uh, grand strategy military strategy political strategy all of those pieces come together at valley forge and washington really understood this you know he he was in my estimation a mediocre tactician but he was a pretty good strategist mm-hmm. he understood the, the connection between politics the exercise of military power he understood the need for example also of french sea power so he gets all of these pieces. He's able to negotiate. He understands the use of power as well. You know, at, at more than one, on more than one occasion, the Congress had awarded him near dictatorial powers, as had governors at times when he was, he was operating in their states, or he and his army rather. Very rarely did Washington ever exercise fully the authority given to him because he understood the implications. What will be the second and third order consequences of my, for example, seizing people's property. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, and so he, he, he really gets all of these pieces. And you see all of this coming together at, at a place called Valley Forge. It allows him, as you pointed out, the physical distance to make it, um, difficult to surprise him from british forces in philadelphia but it's close enough to keep an eye both the armies wage a war against one another indirectly through the consumption and the seizure of foodstuffs for themselves and for their livestock in the lands between the armies and so food becomes a, a almost a almost a weapon to be used against your enemy
1: right and that's what I was, uh, when you talked about the idea that we need to study Valley Forge to keep, to return movement to our understanding about Valley Forge, right? The, the, the most important regular movements were these patrols by uh, Washington's forces, looking for supplies, gathering supplies, gathering intelligence. Um, I want to ask about that, especially because you also mentioned the, was the Grand Forge of 1778 and, uh, and, and the particularly big moment. But in general, was, was the Continental Army... Uh, like other armies of its era, in the way that it dealt with gathering supplies from the uh, from the surrounding community, or was it different because it was uh, a revolutionary force that was fighting a home game, trying to keep from upsetting the local population? Sort of, because I think when people talk about Washington and the Continental Army, they struggle with this question of you know is is the Continental Army interesting because it's gosh it's just like one of them grown-up armies of over there in europe or is it gosh it's it's nothing like them europeans because it's gosh darn uh simple and american and so i'm I'm curious when you think about how washington was running this army right how does he fit into the context of 18th century uh army management and war fighting
0: yeah I, i'm glad you asked that and you know there's, there's a little truth to all of it
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. you know washington was trying to create an army in his idealized image of what the British army was. And so that's what he's trying to do. But he's, unlike the British, and unlike other, Europe, unlike other European armies, he had only short-term enlistments. Mm. The, the army that's at Valley Forge is something like the Third Continental Army. And it's the first one that they're actually getting long-term enlistments, mm. so at least three years so he but so washington's trying to create something that looks like and embodies what he believes makes the british army a competent capable combat force at the same time these soldiers who enlist they are they were very american there were several mutinies and this doesn't mean that these were soldiers who said that hey we're going to go fight for the british now these were soldiers mutinying because they believed that the terms of their enlistment contracts had not been met by the congress or the army they're legalistic they're arguing how much more american can you be yep you know, and so these and these, these mutinies were put down in various ways sometimes through negotiation sometimes through well you're the ringleader you're going to be punished <laughs> so so it, they, they demonstrate so demonstrated so many of the characteristics of American society, it that it really was a people's army in many ways. Even though Washington was trying to create something distinctly different,
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: and he he of course had been a commander of the Virginia militia at one time, colonel of the Virginia regiment during the uh, Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, uh, as most Americans know it, and so he's he understands how American soldiers behave. He was, of course, to back it up a little bit. Quite shocked when he encountered New Englanders, and he found them, in his words, an exceeding nasty uh, bunch of people. <laughs> uh, they were a little bit too Republican, in lowercase R, for his tastes. But he grew to appreciate them and uh, and understand understood how to lead them. Right. So it's in many ways a, a hybrid of sorts. You know, one of the things that uh, one uh, famous French general, uh, the Marshal de Saxe, wrote, is that. Armies should subsist themselves at the expense of the occupied territory. Don't burden your prince with the expense of of feeding and supplying your army. Make the occupied people, the occupied territory, and the people there take care of it. Washington can't. He and his army occupy this sort of existential middle ground as both liberators, defenders, occupiers, and so... Washington enjoins his commanders when they're going out foraging or doing anything else to really try and be cognizant of property rights because he also understood the close connection between people's views of political independence, political autonomy, and economic independence. And if you attack their property, that means that you are attacking in some fashion their political autonomy and you're reducing them to uh, subservience, mm-hmm. and so he recognizes this; he also recognizes that people just get plain angry when you seize their stuff
1: right and this is well and 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 yet they had to somehow go get stuff so this, how does washington how does Washington thread this needle
0: when Wa- Washington sends the the initial uh, foragers out and these are under nathaniel green mm-hmm. got about fourteen hundred guys and they 'll march out of Valley forge in in uh, February of seventeen seventy eight and he is, Green is, is told, make sure that you've got uh, quartermaster or commissary officers who will keep accounts of every property you visit and give receipts to these people. Now, we know that continental dollars were worthless, and they were getting even more worthless as time went on. And that's because of the, the taxation policies, the fact that the Congress had no tax power mm-hmm. and the state's uh, governments were reluctant to tax their people. So, what do you do when you're running out of money? You print more of it instead of tack instead of taxing and calling in money and making it dearer, making it more valuable so Washington has them give out these give out receipts and they can come to camp and collect what they what they they are owed by the Continental Army. Is anybody happy about it? No, some people think of it as theft. Uh, And I can see, I I would feel the same way. I'd be, I would be plenty angry if somebody came in and impressed my goods. Green though, when he is, his his men are working their way through southeastern Pennsylvania, he gets fed up with what takes place. He sees how, one, I I should back up a little bit. One, this land has been foraged over by the British and the Americans. So the pickings are rather slim, and he doesn't really think that they're going to succeed all that much. But Green's a good soldier, he salutes, says, I got you, I'll take care of this boss. Goes out, when he discovers that farmers and other property holders were hiding their goods, he decides, you know what, you're making my men work harder. Now I'm just going to seize it, period. You're not even going to get a promissory note. And so uh, so he, he, he practices in some fashion the hard hand of war. Hmm. He writes back to Washington, I hear their cries, and like Pharaoh, I harden my heart. Hmm. And so he's not at all afraid to put the hammer down. At, at some points, uh, his soldiers will take hostages. Hey, where are they? We will not release you until you tell us where the goods are that we can impress for the army. And so Green really does push it. I don't know exactly how much he was able to uh, get a hold of because the account books, if they exist, I was unable to find them. But he writes to his friend Henry Knox, uh, oh gosh, back in, later in March, uh, and expresses some pride at what he was able to accomplish. So I think he succeeded beyond his expectations.
1: And how far. In, in a in a radius away from Valley Forge, right? How how far if, to somebody who lives in southeastern Pennsylvania today, like I do? Um, mm-hmm. How far did they get on these foraging expeditions? From
0: Forge? Oh gosh, they're um, they'll march out of Valley Forge, and um, let's see. Pretty pretty early on, they will um, they'll engage in a skirmish near the present day 30th Street train station.
1: That's hey now, okay?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, the train station sits on top of a redoubt that was manned by, uh, Ansbachers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, German auxiliaries and course, note.
1: Back in the, back in the day, right. The, the Schuylkill was the border of the city of Philadelphia.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah and, 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 just as a note, they were not mercenaries. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's right. They were uh, not mercenaries. That's right. No, no.
0: These are auxiliary troops. They're, they're, they're princes. Hell, you, you could liken their princes really to pimps. They were sent, they were, they were renting their soldiers out for service under another crown. And so the soldiers are just instruments of the prince's economic policies. And so the, um, they'll engage in, in the firefight there, continue to move on. They move through Derby, and they get maybe 20 miles south of camp, something like that. And Gr- Green tries to make sure that, um, that he keeps an eye out to what's, what's happening to his east. He wants to make sure that the school code remains a boundary for him. Mm-hmm. And he's lucky it does remain one. And so they're, they're operating in that area. Uh, all It was back then, all of it was Chester County. Mm-hmm. I believe it's today uh, Chester and Delaware counties.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. And uh, when did, uh, so uh, at what point was the encampment uh, struck at Valley Forge? Sort of when does the Valley Forge campaign end?
0: it's in may and june of 1778 because, uh, and this, this this foraging operation that's done by green and and then by anthony wayne and uh, henry lee they will their operations will help the army make it through the spring or into the spring and that means that now cattle and salt and other goods can start moving down from new england hmm. which is one of the main which was one of the main sources for feeding the army the army's also, or rather, the quartermasters and commissaries have gone and reconstituted the magazine at Head of Elk, which serves really as a key node in the supply system for the Continental Army. So by so by May or June, the supplies are starting to flow in better. Although I will add that the Continental s- supply system. Was a shambling wreck most of its existence. Some days it shambled less. <laughs> Some yeah. days it was less of a wreck, but for the most part, it uh, seemed to totter on on ruin on a regular basis, and that's because of the way the the system was set up. Right. In any case, uh, May or June, they've got new recruits. They've now the army now has standardized training. Uh, I know that uh, the Baron de Steuben and he used uh, the French versus von because well baron people understood but Freiherr did not translate well into english a free man what does that mean well i'll just call myself a baron and you know what baron's french so i'll just go by duh and that was actually very common among german officers to adopt the the french article so they're ready they're ready uh to take the field in the spring late spring early summer of 1778.
1: interesting and and so how at the time because this is uh, was we're, we're we're coming up near the end of this conversation but i'm the the myth making about valley forge so was it already common in the spring of 1778 for people to emphasize how difficult the winter had been or was it just it it was winter So you know so when did the when did the legend of when was the legend of valley forge born
0: oh boy that would have been really in the um the the 19th century oh. i mean the, the the winter at valley the valley forge winter while while it sucked <laughs> was not as bad as the morristown winters mm-hmm. and and but it was one that was really full of violent variations in weather and so there's there's a there was a freeze thaw rain cycle going on rivers flooding the roads which were bad to begin with turned even worse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it becomes it uh, becomes really mythologized in uh, the nineteenth century, and I think part of it is location. You're ne- you're near Philadelphia. It's one of the largest cities in the in the newborn United States, and then you see certainly by 1876 with the centennial, um, it be- becomes really it really uh, becomes enshrined in myth, and it and it just continues to grow. Although um, I would I would recommend that everyone watched the Bugs Bunny version of it.
1: I mean, I think that's a good way for everybody when the, when the ice cream man shows up and <laughs> is shot up by angry oh, soldiers, right?
0: It is. That is I, I love that scene. I still laugh at it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and actually, this, this makes me think of, this would be my, my final question, right? Is that Valley Forge, of course, is a national battlefield park. Mm. which is is, it's a a a national national historic park park, historic historic park park. because i was going to say is it is one of the few military historic parks that is not a battlefield is i don't know if it's the only one i'm not uh, i don't know if you know if it's the only one but i but i think that makes it unusual in that sense doesn't
0: it it does it does and it's uh uh, morristown is is the other
1: okay because it also was a continental uh,
0: outpost right yeah it's, an, it's another another winter encampment for the army but yeah those those are the only two that re- that come to mind uh, there may be others but those are the only two that really come to mind and um i mean and and i think that that's one of the things to take it back to teaching you know we we emphasize strategy grand strategy all those pieces here at the war college and because there is no fighting at valley forge you don't have the sexy tactical stuff to take away from the real strategic import. Mm. And so it is, I think, one of the key places to really wrap your mind around strategy and not get distracted by the umpty-ump regiment seizing this hill or that hill or charging valiantly across this or that field. Right Here you get to talk about and look at and study policy, Mm -hmm. strategy, how the political pieces work with it, what is it that they're hoping to attain, all of those key big picture things.
1: Well, and if if people are willing to and interested in following the advice to actually study the importance of Valley Forge, they should start by getting themselves a copy of Feeding Washington's Army from the University of North Carolina Press. Rick Herrera, it's been a pleasure to have you on a better piece to talk about your work. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Okay, thanks a lot, Ron.
1: Been a blast. It was a lot of fun. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice, because after a conversation like this, really, why wouldn't you want to subscribe to A Better Piece? And after you have done so, please rate and review this podcast, because that's how other people and find out about us. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, I look forward to welcoming you next time. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Grenery.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu, and have a great day.